This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to East Screen, West Screen. This is the program where we talk about films from Hong Kong to Hollywood and many things in between. This is episode 28 for Tuesday, May, what is it, 25th, 2010. I am Paul Fox, and joining me as always is my good friend and co-host, Mr. Kevin Ma. Konnichiwa, everybody. And we're very fortunate this week to have also joining us, um, just back from Udine a few weeks ago, uh, Mr. Tim Youngs. Tim, how you doing? I'm good, thanks. All right, so we're going to be jumping in uh, right into things with some East Screen news for this week. Um, but before we get into that, I do need to make mention that uh, it's a birthday today. Uh, do you guys know what birthday it is, by chance? Nope. It is uh, 33 years ago this date that Star Wars, the original Star Wars, uh, Episode Four, by some people's standards, uh, was released, and so it's a it's a national geek holiday for <laughs> many people across the planet. Actually, this is actually celebrated as Geek Day uh, for many many people. So we were just mentioning la on last week's episode that uh, George Lucas's birthday had passed, and so today. On this very day, we have the birthday of Star Wars. So, happy birthday, Star Wars. You're 33, and you're still a lot younger than I am. Dang it. Sorry, I'm, I'm mourning the death of Death Star 1. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into our East Screen news for this week. Um, so, up first, um, the famous series, the uh, famous, uh, I guess you'd call it softcore porn series, from Hong Kong, Sex and Zen is going to be getting a 3D release. Um, now, Kevin, as the uh, authority on these types of films, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> whoa, whoa, my parents listen to this, all right? <laughs> um, but no, what what can you tell us about about the news behind this? Uh, this this you know we've been talking quite a bit in these past weeks about everything becoming 3D. Um, can you give us any more details about this? Well, depends on what kind of details you're asking for, Paul. No, it's uh, uh, it, it's been on for a while. Um, this news it was it was traveling around film markets. I think since last year, 2009's film mark, um, and uh, for a while the apparent delete actress dropped out, so it, it, it kind of stalled for a while. But apparently now producer Steven Sill is ready to really start shooting Sex and Zen 3D um, in July. It seems like. Um, what do you, uh, Tim? Do you have anything, any any details that that that's not in the Hollywood Reporter report? Well, uh, actually, as soon as I saw this was the topic tonight, I pulled open the promotional PDF that went out here at Filmart. Uh, <laughs> the the tagline is "Transcending Sensational Limits with an Epochal Classics." <laughs> yeah, if that's not going to turn you uh, on, I don't know what will. <laughs> it, it, it's totally rock and roll. Uh, I read somewhere that it's 3D IMAX, and I just can't possibly believe. It. Yeah, I, I don't think it, I know it has a, has a budget of 30 million Hong Kong dollars, which I'm sure it's double the budget of probably both Sex and Chopstick films. I'm not sure, but it it just seems kind of unlikely that you have Feng Shao Gan's Aftershock, and then you have Sex and Zen 3D going to IMAX. It, it, the jump is too big for me. You know, we've talked about this a little bit before that 
this seems to be a point of uh, boasting or a, a point of pride or a point of bragging rights for some of the um, softcore porn directors in Hong Kong with regard to who's going to be the first one to make the first, you know, softcore 3D film. And it almost seems like there's a race to get this done as if that's going to count for something in the long run. They've actually lost the race, of course. Uh, when, when 3D Sex and Zen was first announced, uh, other people in the media picked up that it wasn't the first. Uh, and, and in fact, the promotional brochure at the time even pulled out a uh, quote from the Times in the UK that said that 3D porn is nothing new. Somehow, so that would help promote the film. Well, it's, it's, not, it's not anything Bizarre. new, but I don't think there, there to date, has there been a uh, softcore film that's been done using this new 3D technology? I mean, there's certainly I, I been ones done so. using the old 3D technology, but this new 3D technology is something that operates a little bit different and uses different technology, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. but I, I don't know if anyone's asking for it. That's the question. Hmm. Well, I'm not asking for it. Even to show it. Yeah. Um, I, don't think, yeah you know, I can't imagine. I can't imagine like because uh, the two IMAX theaters in Hong Kong are in fairly family-friendly malls. I mean, imagine you know this theater that was showing How to Train Your Dragon a couple weeks ago, and then next year it will be the kids going to the IMAX, and then oh, what's all, mommy? And then uh, turn around, kids. Right. Well, let's move on and talk about our next news item this week. Um, it Man Two has put the smackdown on Kung Fu Hustle in Singapore. Um, this news coming from Film Biz Asia, that uh, after weeks of screenings, um, the Ip Man 2 sequel, the Ip Man sequel, um, has taken in more money than uh, the current predecessor, Kung Fu Hustle. Um, so it's made, if the figure is correct, uh, $4.5 uh, at the Singapore box office, beating the 4.32 million record that had been held down for the past five years by Stephen Chow's film. Um, I'm not sure. Do you, do you think that this is simply due to uh, numbers in the audience, or you know, do we have to take into account things like an increase in ticket prices and things like that? This is very strange. I can understand why it meant to do well in China, you know, the, the nationalism stuff, but... What do Singaporean people have to feel nationalistic for after watching Iron Man Two? Is what they all hate. They all start. Well, I mean, they they do Chinese they do they, well. They do kind of sort of share. Bleh, can't talk tonight. They do sort of share a similar history in terms of colonialism and you know some of the some of the representations that we've talked about previously um, being portrayed in the Hong Kong context could be equally translated over to a context in a place like Singapore or Vietnam or, you know, other countries and places that had had a very strong colonial influence, right? Um, Tim, what do you, what's your take on this? Yeah, I, I can't really understand why it would top uh, Kung Fu Hustle in Singapore at all. <laughs> it, it, it's, I think it, it's probably just on the back of it being entertaining. Uh, it's, it's, you know, a reasonably good action film. And you know the if if you take it as lighthearted entertainment, then there's something on offer. But yeah, no, I, I 
can't explain it in the Singapore context at all, though. Yeah, maybe <laughs> I mean, can we can we make the argument that perhaps Donnie Yen is is you know solidly taking a place as a top billing star now? You know, alongside of uh, people like uh, Stephen Chow and uh, Chow Yun Fat and Michelle Yeoh, and that um, perhaps he his name alone is enough to just draw people to the theater. Yeah, I think I think as much as we deny, as much as we make fun of the Donnie, it, he has become sort of the the new big uh, name, uh, box office drawing star. It's something that we've been looking for—a new generation of of uh, stars that that can bank based on name alone. And it seems like Donnie is the one. <laughs> I do. Usually, I would say that in kind of a sarcastic way, but yeah, it would seem like Donnie has become the one. <laughs> Yeah, I just have visions of a of the Jet Li film, you know, <laughs> multiple universes with many Donnies fighting it out for domination. I I think for for It Man too, it's kind of surprising because if it was released in something like a time like Chinese New Year, it would be a lot easier to understand. You know, it's a big film going period, but but it came out in mid May, right? No, or late April. It just yeah. sort of came out of nowhere. All right, let's move on to our next bit of uh, East Screen news. Um, so recently at the Cannes Film Festival, uh, a Thai film uh, has taken the top award, a film called uh, Uncle Bon Mi, if I'm saying that correctly, uh, has won the main prize. And this is the first Thai film to take a prize. Um, so this is a little bit of big news for Thai cinema. Um, Kevin, have you have you seen this film? No, no, it it was a world premiere, obviously. Um, the the full name, by the way, is Uncle Bumi, who can recall his past lives. Uh, director's name is even hard to pronounce. Apichapong Rira Sethaku. Um, I I've seen I've seen one. Well, I've seen and slept through one Apichapong film. Uh, it was his break breakout film, I believe. It was a mysterious object at noon. And he's always been kind of a art house director. He was never really commercially popular in Thailand, but he's very talented because uh, he not only directs, he also does art installations uh, and short films. He's quite talented in multiple media. So it's good for Thai films that that it's getting the international spotlight, especially what's happened recently. Um, but it's, I don't think it'll help Apichapong at back in Thailand because his films sort of have this... I think it seems like his films sort of have this, this, this uh, connotation that's very artsy. Mm. Yeah, but uh, very glad that one um, for Asian film because Asian Asia sort of have a weakened presence this year at the at the film festival. Um, another Asian film, uh, Korea's uh, Ha Ha Ha, by Hong Sang Soo, another kind of art house altair from Korea. It won the Uncertain Regard Prize. I'm not sure if that was French, even if it was an English reading of a French name uh also uh korean director lee chang dong who did a uh, secret sunshine won best screenplay for his latest film uh poetry um so good it's good I'm, I'm glad that asian films even though they they kind of been weakening i guess these last couple of years uh they're getting recognition i can uh tim are you gonna have you seen any apichapong films no, 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 not at all. I haven't seen one. Um, I mean, they're, they're not the kind of films that really, you know, get a theatrical release in Hong Kong. Uh, uh, you really only go to see them in film festivals. I, I think one other film you didn't mention is The Housemaid. Uh, I know uh, yes. you brought it up last week. Uh, yes. I mean, of the, the, the Cannes films, you can imagine that's the one that's going to get the widest publicity. 
coming out of the festival, even though it didn't take any awards. You can, you can imagine it would do quite well in Hong Kong. Mm. It, already, it already opened really huge in, uh, in Korea. I think the biggest opening for a local film this year. So well, based on one being the remake of the classic film and, and two be having, um, uh, what's her name, John, John Du Yong in the cast. Well, I mean, it's I'm I'm very happy and pleased to see uh, Asian films doing well. But um, you know, to be honest, I think the last Thai film I saw was a a low budget horror ghost story. So I'm not really that up on uh, Thai cinema as I should be. Um, but maybe this will start generating some buzz and and you know, getting more of these films some international play. Um, but on that same note, it's kind of ironic because if you followed international news at all, um, you know of the violence that's currently going on in Thailand. And um, unfortunately, along with some of that violence, there's a there's a story that says that uh, two of Thailand's um, better known cinemas have been damaged and destroyed uh, in the anti-government uprising. And, you know, I mean... Although we're talking about, you know, people losing their lives in this conflict and, you know, a, a, a simple location, a geographic location like a cinema complex doesn't seem anywhere near as important as, as the, you know, the lives, human lives that are being lost. Um, it is, you know, somewhat tragic to see the, you know, on the one hand, you've got this Thai director, um, you know, at this international festival here in Cannes winning this recognition and at the same time you know nearly at the same time in his country is going through this turmoil and that's leading to the destruction of the very houses that would likely you know screen some of his work for his own countrymen so it, it's kind of ironic and a little bit tragic in a way and i mean for the industry is actually has a quite bigger impact than one might think because it says that um one cinema chain um says that the, the screen that they lost, the theater they lost, the 14-screen multiplex, accounts for 15% of that chain's revenue. So it's obviously it's going to have a huge uh, uh, temporary, but it's going to have a, quite an impact on the industry itself. Yeah. There's also a heritage thing as well. Apparently the other cinema that went, went up in flames was uh, one of the last two standalone theaters in, or single-screen theaters in Bangkok. So, you know, it's... it's part of the end of an era. Uh, our final story for East Screen this week, our final bit of news, is the news that uh, actor, young actor Arif Lee, who some of you may have come across in Echoes of the Rainbow, is slated to play uh, Bruce Lee. Um, Kevin, you want to give us some insight into this? Yes. Um, writer Manfred Wan, he's more known for... Um, his acting roles, I think, in the 80s, and also as the writer of um, the Young and Dangerous series, also of Storm Riders, uh, the first film. Uh, he's writing and producing a new Bruce Lee biopic, uh, and he has casted um, Aerith Lee to play Bruce Lee after seeing him Echoes of the Rainbow. Um, they already got the rights from uh, Bruce Lee's younger brother because um, it's a lot easier for him because uh, Manfred Wong is uh, focusing on... Bruce Lee's days as a juvenile delinquent from his days in childhood in San Francisco to his days in Hong Kong and why he had to return to America. Now, unlike uh, the usual, I guess, the Bruce Lee biopic where you had to cover his days in America working in Hollywood, those films you have to, to buy the rights from um, his widow and also his kids. 
this researcher skips it over, and also I think it's a story that's never been told. That at least that's what Man from Wan says. And personally, I think that's that would be a more interesting take. It's more interesting take than say Bruce Lee playing the cultural hero or playing the the hero of Hong Kong cinema. Instead, you just see him as who he is. You know, as a as a as a kid. Yeah, and I think uh, that's interesting too because, um, you know, like you said, he he really led two lives in a sense because. Most people in the West and most people in the States in particular know him for his films. Mm -hmm. They know him for the development of his own martial arts style. And they just know a little bit about his background in Hong Kong, you know, that, that he had learned Wing Chun from a master named Ip Man. They, you know, and, and those, those elements were touched on very briefly in the Dragon story, the, the movie Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. Um, but yeah, that whole that whole period of his youth when he was supposed to be sort of rebellious and um, getting into a lot of trouble, and and th that aspect that's sort of another aside of Bruce Lee that people in Hong Kong kind of know about, but people in the West really don't know that much about. Um, so I think it'll be it'll make for some very interesting material. I'm really hoping that they'll spend some time focusing on his youth a little bit more. I mean, I I know that. They've tagged Arif to sort of play him as, you know, a teenager and older. But Bruce Lee was a child actor in um, a lot of early Hong Kong films. And I'd be very interested to see some of that story as well, how that came about and, and you know, some of the take on that aspect of his life. Well, I think the film is supposed to be in the style of a, of a 50s teen film. So maybe we could expect a little more... American Hong Kong graffiti, I guess. Uh, American graffiti than say, than say Dragon, um, and hopefully no it man, no more nationalism, shameless nationalism. Um, so yeah, Tim, what are your thoughts on uh, on this uh, new Bruce Lee film and the uh, young Arif Lee taking up the role? Oh, when I'm all for it for you know casting Arif Lee, I thought he was really quite fine in Echoes of the Rainbow. Um, it's also good that they're focusing on the, the younger Bruce Lee. Like you, I think it's it's an interesting period. I think the films that he made then are really, really interesting. And uh, maybe it would boost you know interest in them as well. It's especially interesting that Manfred Wan, the guy who wrote the entire Young and Dangerous series, is doing going back to this teen juvenile delinquent film. <laughs> Bruce Lee as Chang Ho Nam. It, just, it, it, kind of, it, it sounds, it sounds uh, delicious already for me. Well, I can't say I'm a really big fan of uh, Arif Lee. He really didn't do that much for me in Echoes of the Rainbow, as we've already talked about. I'm, you know, I'm open to this film, but I'm, he just doesn't seem to have a Bruce Lee type of quality to me. I mean, the, the character he played in Echoes of the Rainbow, for example, was sort of this, you know, bookish, straight-laced kid from, you know... And he was he was from the other side of the tracks, but simply because of you know financial aspects, not because he was a, a a tough guy or a teddy boy or anything like this. So I'm not really sold on the idea that that he might be able to pull this role off. Um, but he's still a young actor. I mean, I, I my mind could be changed. We'll have to give him a chance and see what he does with it. I I think it would at least be better than the other other version, the other Brucey biopic being planned by Mandarin Films and Filmco. That one is going to be about uh, the typical one uh, about Brucey getting bullied in Hollywood and then going back to Hong Kong and finding success. I think that is going to be closer to to the nationalism of Ip Man than than say 
the Manfred Wong version. let's move on and talk about our east screen film for this week so kevin i'm gonna let you take up this one um well, what's the film we're gonna talk about today we're talking about uh once a gangster the film directing debut by felix chong uh who co-wrote the inferno fair series uh also last uh lady comic papa crook and i think he also co-directed moonlight in tokyo uh so this is his first time taking on uh, solo directing uh, and it's an interesting idea. It's um, it's a gangster film, of course, the, as the title says. But it's, it's interesting because it's kind of a deconstruction of the gangster genre. Um, it stars uh, Jordan Chan and Egin Chan, the two figures of the young and dangerous era because they played, I guess, the two main characters. But uh, it is quite different from what they played about uh, 10 years ago. Jordan Chan plays a young gangster who joined the triads because he wanted to open a restaurant and and just and he's his boss is played by uh alex fong uh, his name is kerosene i believe the character um anyway so he joins the triad because he wanted to open a restaurant not because he wanted to be be cool or look like he's from in the young and dangerous series or because he wants to be a tough guy he just wanted to open a restaurant and don't want triad attention but um, as fate would have it, he, he sort of rises through the triads and manages to open a very successful chain of restaurants. Um, but um, Kerosene uh, apparently hasn't been very good at managing the triads. He owes a lot of money, and he wants uh, the Jordan Chan character to take over in order to, to, sort, to sort out the books. But uh, in sort of a nice twist to the genre is that Jordan Chen doesn't want to be the boss. His whole struggle through the film, at least the first half of the film, is to avoid being the boss. Then comes uh, the Yikin Chen character, his, solu- his possible solution. Uh, he's a gangster who, who, who did a heroic deed, quote-unquote heroic, by killing, uh, I, I believe, a potential witness. And then he went to jail for 20 years, So, which uh, by triad law means that he's supposed to come out and become the boss, which uh, poses hope for, for Jordan Chen's character, but then turns out the Ikin Chan character has been reformed in prison as well and ha- learned about economics and is going to, wants to study economics at Hong Kong University. So now it, it becomes a battle between these two men who don't, who do not be the boss. And it's just, just that idea to me is, is actually quite funny. Um, and it, it's quite a good, it, it's a very smart deconstruction of the gangster drama because one, you got the, all these, all these symbols uh, or typical devices that you would see in gangster films like the stick the dragon stick i believe that is like from the election films you got the you got the undercover cop uh played by wilfred lao you got the the bosses fighting over who uh, about being leadership except it's it's about not being a leader so the all these kind of reversal of these usual gangster devices um for me was really really amusing um and and in a way it's almost as as local as it gets for a Hong Kong film, I think, uh, because I think these these themes for for um, 
for an audience who didn't grow up watching these gangster films, they might not catch it as well. Uh, and they might not see how clever it is. Um, as for uh, Felix Chong, I think he is a great writer. This is a really great screenplay, I think. The script is really great. But his directing is obviously very messy. It's almost like he, he can't quite control certain scenes at times. And the pacing is really off. And um, Yi Kin Chen, the, the, the main, I guess, protagonist or antagonist, depends on how you see the story, he doesn't come in until more than halfway through the film. So the pacing is really off. It almost feels like it's two films or two episodes of a story. Um, but but that beside, I think it's a, quite a fun gangster film. It's something that all, I think, young and dangerous fans should definitely check out. Uh, fans of the gangster genre should check out. And even if you're not fans of the gangster genre, I think, and, and, and you'll find, for ga- fans or sorry, for non-fans of the gangster genre, they might even find something to enjoy here because of how it deconstructs the genre that they hate. So what do you think, Paul? Do you agree or... Well, yeah. Um, well, but why don't we let our, our guest kind of chime in and uh, give some of his thoughts. Tim, you've seen the film. Um, you've also seen uh, quite a number of local gangster films uh, in your time. Uh, what was your take on it? Uh, I'm pretty much with Kevin on this. I think that uh, if you're a fan of the genre, you're going to really pick up on how it, it plays with form. Uh, but it, it's also just so entertaining that and it's it's written well enough that even if you're not into the films, even if you don't pick up the local references, you're still going to have a lot of fun. Uh, the whole absurdity of these two guys trying to essentially lose an election uh, because, uh, you know, they, they want to move on to other things. It is funny enough, but it's even better when you have a character like uh, Conroy Chance <laughs> thrown into the mix uh, to really liven things up. I, I think the film works on a couple of levels. Uh, locally, there's a lot that you can pick up on, like political references as well. Um, but internationally, it, it, it's it's just a fun ride. Hmm. Yeah. Does, do, do you think it would play as well internationally? I mean, even to, to people who, who don't watch uh, or who are not familiar with the triad genre? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's obviously a Hong Kong film parody in there, but it's it's played in such a way that you can just take it as 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 a running gag. For example, uh, Wilfred Lau, you brought him up. Uh, he's essentially playing Tony Leung right through right. the film. Right. And even if you haven't seen Infernal Affairs, it's still a fun part because his character is written in this fantastic partnership with Conroy Chan. That's just constantly amusing. Uh, it doesn't really matter that that there's parody parody going on there. Yeah, I, 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 I'd agree to some extent, but I would say that, um, I don't know, I, I, would, I would feel that at the very least you will need to have seen uh, Infernal Affairs and Election because so much of what's going on in this film is directly taken from those more recent films. Um, that there's just, there, there, are, there are contextual layers that I think for an outsider, you'd kind of look at some of what's going on and go, kind of scratch your head go what what what, what does that mean um and, and there, yeah, definitely there, um, there's a couple that. shots and there's a couple sequences that are literally lifted directly from infernal affairs and, and directly from election um but I, I it is it is a very fun film i was i was pleasantly surprised and it does really reference i mean references i was looking at references going all the way back to um the the chow yun fat movie triads the inside story i mean the opening scene with all these 
young guys, these young initiates kind of standing around in their underwear is is primarily the opening scene from that film. Um, and then at one point you've got the, the theme song from that film, which um, was originally sung by Chow Yun-Fat, um, playing as sort of the, the overall theme song here. Um, there's just there's there's so much self-reflection and self-reference um jordan chan's character for example um his his translated name is roast pork and i kept wondering myself you know is that a play on his old young and dangerous character which was he kind of got famous for who was named chicken you know so he's in, in both cases he's had been had characters been named after you know primary food that people would eat, um, and the fact that he wants to be a chef more than a gangster, um, and that the fact that his, his best dish is chicken. Yeah, his, yeah. And also, then you know, Ikan Chang's storyline um, very much reminded me of uh, the the character he played in the film Goodbye, Mr. Cool, who's like, you know, this character who had this big bad reputation, and he gets released from from prison, and he just wants he wants to go straight. He's been reformed. The system has worked so to speak, and he wants to just, you know, do his thing, and the society sort of won't let him. It won't leave him alone. Um, but here it's sort of, you know, being played off for, for laughs, you know. So you've got this angle where he just wants to go and become a, a Hong Kong U student, and then they're, you know, they're, they're bullying the Hong Kong U admissions board to try and make sure that he gets in or he doesn't get in. Um, so, yeah, it's it's really great fun, even more so if you've, if you've got some some connection to a, a lot of the things that it's it's referring back to on a contextual level, um, you know the the the, the, the so some of the supporting roles were were very substantial, especially the ladies. Um, for example, Ma, Michelle Yeh has a uh, very substantial role as Nancy, who who's the wife of uh, Jordan Chan, and then. Um, uh, Name escapes Candace me. Yu. Yeah, Candace, Candace Yu. Yeah, Candace Yu playing um, uh, Ikan Cheng's mother, who's like uh, kind of like a Sister 13 uh, kind of character. You know, she's got some power in the organization, but she's also this massive drug addict. So nobody really trusts her to, to, to run things. And she just wants her son to be in charge so that she can get, get access to more drugs. Um, yeah, just really sort of an over the top, but very fun role. Um, there, there was some that, you know, there, there, there were a couple, you know, I do agree with Kevin that it was a little bit messy in places. Um, there was one, one place in particular, there was a chopping as, as they would call it, you know, where the, you know, a character is attacked by a bunch of guys with, with cleavers. And this, this character was literally hacked to death. And I, I don't want to spoil by saying which character it was. Um, but the way that that they took that character out, it seemed like it didn't really fit. Um, it, it seemed like I don't know. It just did it, it, it. It didn't seem like that's what should have happened to that character. Um, but also, the character was literally hacked into nothingness. You know, I just remember <laughs> watching that scene, and and you know, immediately afterwards, there's people standing around, but there's like no no part of his body's left. It's like you know, where's his head? Where's his arms? It, 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 there was like nothing. He was disintegrated from the hacking. And I don't know if that was intentional or that was just because they were on such a low budget they couldn't really have a realistic looking corpse there. Um but yeah, it's just there were there were a couple moments like that which kind of threw me into thinking is this intentional or is this just you know the the effect of being a very low budget film. 
But yeah, the violence definitely put me off a little bit. It, it almost seemed like it's some real serious violence in the film. Uh, you got real pe- people who are dead uh, quite a bit and, and died quite violently. And yet the whole thing at the end is just sort of like, ah, oh, this is, this is a funny, it's, it's comedy. In, in a way, it sort of threw me off a little bit. I don't know if that happened to you guys. Tim, what did you do? You have yeah, I mean, actually, the, the the really violent scene you mentioned actually ends with a gag as well, where you know one other person's looking for body parts, and, and you know it, it's that that really odd mix of, of extreme violence and comedy. It's time to turn to some West Screen news for this week, and coming up first, a little bit, a little story about uh, Planet of the Apes. Apparently, James Franco has been signed on to star in a Planet of the Apes prequel, and this news is coming off the Sci-Fi Wire. As I bring up the link, um, and so, yeah, apparently in this story, uh, this, is, this is a prequel, and uh, James Franco plays a scientist who, uh, in his search for a cure for the Alzheimer's disease, he inadvertently uh, creates advanced intelligence in an ape test subject, and thus this sets off sort of the events that will lead to ape revolution. Um, but this seems a bit weird to me. Uh, I, I'm assuming this is a prequel to the um the um tim burton version that we were given a few years ago and this doesn't really seem to fit with what we were given there i mean i i I watched the film again on video um i think back in december i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) well i'd I'd forgotten it and and (laughs) for for me it was forgettable and i uh, i had gone through and i had i I got a, a box set of the original Planet of the Apes, Apes movies, and I had watched them all the way through, and so I was curious. I was like, you know, I don't really remember the the Tim Burton version. Let me go back and watch it, and then I realized uh, why I didn't remember it after watching it again. <laughs> um, but this doesn't really seem to fit in with the timeline and and the things that were sort of established there. It doesn't. Um, 
it doesn't really make sense to me. So I'm not sure if this is a standalone film or if this is really supposed to fit in with Tim Burton's or they're trying to make this a take on the timeline of the originals, which also doesn't seem like it would make sense. What do you think, Kevin? I mean, do uh, you have any ideas about this? Uh, I, I hated the Tim Burton version. I'm sorry. So I'm glad that they're trying to... Because the, the report says it's a, it's a reboot, right? So um, it's it's uh, I think the smartest move that Fox could make is just to undo that film and then do a reboot and then start before so you can set up a new franchise with a new story. Now, with that said, I, I don't think this is a good idea. I mean, no one really asked for another Planet of the Apes after the Tim Burton version came out. I mean, it had a huge opening weekend in America, but then it went away really quickly. And like you said, it was really forgettable. In fact, when you were talking about what it was setting up for the reboot, I didn't remember a thing. I don't remember what, what it could possibly break. Yeah. So, well, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll throw out a quick, quick spoiler warning um, in case you haven't seen the film. You've seen it, right, Kevin, the Tim Burton one? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So, I mean, as I, as I remember... Um, Mark Wahlberg, he gets into his time capsule going after um, one of the chimps that they're using on this space station, and he gets he, he ends up going through a time vortex or, or some kind of a thing, and he ends up on this planet, and it turns out that the, the planet has, you know, the apes ruling, and the humans are used as, as sort of servants, and cut to the chase to the end, and it, it somehow turns out that... Uh, um, you know, that the the ship that he was originally on, that, that he, he had left before going into the time vortex, also got sucked into the time vortex, and that the apes and the humans had <clears throat> sort of extended themselves from, you know, that spe those two species o o over the years. Um, the, the apes ultimately became intelligent, more and more intelligent, and they somehow took charge, and the humans, um, you know, were, were made... Um, docile during that period. They, then what was the? I remember the the ape that uh, Mark Wahlberg sent out as a as the um, what you call it as a lab rat came down at the end of the film. Uh, yeah, come down. Yeah. He, he he ended up coming down. You know, it was like it it was weird because he entered the time vortex first, Mark Wahlberg second, and then their their space station third. And it's like based on that order, they sort of entered the planet in reverse order um and so yeah the the, the the monkey i don't remember the monkey's name came down and they kind of realized what was going on and then i think his name was thane who was um uh, uh, who's the actor who played him um, um drawing a blank i'm sorry which one are you talking the, about the, the the he was like the bad ape the really bad tim ape. roth yeah tim roth okay and um so the, the big twist for this version was that Mark Wahlberg gets back on his ship, goes back into the time portal, goes forward in time, uh, at least according to the clock counter, um, and then ends up getting back to Earth, but now Earth is dominated by the apes, and you've got a, a picture of Thane as, um, as the, the Lincoln Memorial. Instead of the Lincoln Memorial, it's the Thane Memorial, and, and that's how sort of the movie ends. So this, and honestly, no one really cared. Yeah. Um, and I, I just remember there was some, some kind of big spiel about this Burton having supposedly stolen this idea from Kevin Smith or from some somebody else in a comic book or something. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't a very it wasn't a great movie. It was an okay sci-fi movie. It, for me, it didn't really hold a candle to the originals, um, especially the first two, which which weren't 
in part my favorite. But this just doesn't really seem to fit. So they call it a, a reboot uh, or prequel. And it just, you know, it seems like a reboot, okay. Um, but it doesn't really seem to be that, I don't know, it doesn't seem to be that intriguing um, as a film. I mean, even in, even in the old ones, when they start to tell uh, the story of how the Planet of the Apes came to be, I think it was in the third film, um, when the, the, the two ape characters, um, I can't remember their names, Roddy McDowell and the other character, they end up going back in time to modern day Earth and they have a child and, <clears throat> and their chimp child is the one who ends up uh, sort of leading uh, the, the, the ape rebellion uh, that causes the whole cycle of events to start. Um, so, yeah, that's like the third movie in the series and, and it's, not, it's not that exciting, really. Um, that, that story, it's like the, the first one is still the best, uh, um, from a narrative because it became, it became too in love with his own idea. It sounds like, yeah, I, I, in a way. And, and also because it, it was really one of the first films to explore the notion of franchise and merchandise. Um, mm. a lot of people look at, you know, star Wars and they look at the, the idea of, you know, the toys and the sequels and everything, but planet of the apes was really doing that before Star Wars had done it. And they were, they were doing the toys and the lunchboxes and things. Um, they had the Saturday morning cartoon series. They, they had a, they had a, it became a TV series at one point. And so, yeah, there was a lot of franchising. They kind of beat the series to death and it died a, a very slow and, and long death ultimately. Um, but yeah, I'm, I, I don't know. This could be good. It, this might, you know, being a different take on it. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, having never having never seen the original, I still think the best version of Planet of the Apes is the uh, Planet of the Apes musical in The Simpsons. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's a great scene. Um, <clears throat> Doctor Zayus, Doctor yeah. Zayus. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll have to uh, wait and see how this turns out. Oh, the the name of the apes were Cornelius, played by Roddy McDowell, and Zira, who was played by Kim Hunter, and then their son after they went back in time to modern day earth was caesar uh, appropriately enough who ultimately led the the uh, ape rebellion against the humans um so there you are if you're you know dying to see apes i would much much i would I'd seriously recommend going to see the originals uh, before you see the tim burton remake the tim burton remakes okay in the context of having seen the originals but the originals do look somewhat dated All right, our next bit of news. Um, I can find my notes. There they are. Uh, Megan Fox, a woman after my own name, although she is no <laughs> relation to me. Uh, Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> you well, told me you were, Paul. Well, you know, I, I got I to gotta get what play off my name I can, right? Uh, <laughs> actually, I'm kind of glad we're not related. Uh, <laughs> But Megan Fox is not going to be in Transformers 3, and there's a little bit of a, you know, scuttlebutt about, did she, was she fired? Did she quit? And then there's the third camp, which I'm kind of firmly in, is do we really care? I mean, <laughs> um, I, I haven't sp really spoken to anybody uh, in person yet who hands down likes Transformers 2. Um, Transformers 1 was, was good for what it was. Um, I, I have yet to meet somebody 
in person in the flesh who's told me that they liked Transformers 2. And I, I know some people are of the same mind as me in that if we see a Transformers 3, we don't want people in it, right? We just <laughs> want the robots. That's what's interesting. That was what was interesting about the cartoon. Um, in the cartoon, you know, they had they had like one human who had a, a very small role typically, and that was a kid named Spike, I think his name was. And, and But here we've got, you know, Shia LaBeouf, you know, all, all the time. He's got all the screen time. And then you've got to have the love interest, Megan Fox. Well, just get rid of them. You know, I I'm, I have no interest in seeing them. I want to see I want to see the robots fighting and, and kicking Decepticon can. And that's pretty much all I want to see. So give me that in a Transformers 3 movie and I'll be very happy. Um, I don't need Megan Fox. And I've really not been interested in her after since I watched, um, what is it, uh, Jennifer's Body. Mm-hmm. Um, after seeing that film, I was like, eh, okay, I'm done. I'm done with her. I mean, there are, there are plenty of actresses who look nice and she may, might, you know, can be voted the most beautiful person in Hollywood or whatever, you know, People Magazine decides to lavish upon her in terms of titles or awards or whatnot. That doesn't really interest me. Um, I haven't seen her expand out out and do anything substantial in, you know, these past couple of years. So she's not a draw for me. So I'm, you know, I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Kevin? Are you, are you interested or less interested in a Transformers sequel with this news? Um, it doesn't affect me either way because I didn't care for her. Yeah, I didn't care for the human story. I didn't care for the robot balls. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I didn't care much for Transformers in general because I didn't really like the first film either, Sally. Yeah. Um. It to, to me it's more interesting the story. It's kind of like Rashomon, the way this is coming out. Um, I don't know if you you read all the stuff around it. Is that first, um, <clears throat> it was fo- it was the news that Megan Fox wasn't going to be in it, and then um, three crew members um wrote an anonymous letter and sent it out and complaining about Megan Fox's behavior, and then um and then Michael Bay um he 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 denounced the letter of a really short note. And then another another crew person wrote a letter defending Fox. It's, it's just going back and forth. And whose fault is it? Who cares? The the idea that the, each crew member has a different way of looking at a Michael Bay set and how Megan Fox behaves is somewhat interesting in a way that it, it, it kind of tells you what goes on on set, how much gossiping and things like that. But in the scheme of things, I mean, no one really... I didn't really want a Transformers 3. I don't care if Megan Fox is in Transformers 3. And yeah... Um, this news doesn't really matter to me. It's just yeah. the way that it's rolling out. It's it to me is more interesting seeing who's right and who's not. Yeah, um, I I can I can agree with a lot of that. I mean, you've you've probably been around enough uh, film sets to know that that kind of stuff goes on um, all the time. The the one film that I worked on when I was a youth, uh, it was it was rife with those kinds of politics and he said <laughs> she said he said she said kind of things and. You know the, the the crew guys didn't like the, the certain actress, and this certain actress was you know she kind of had her head in the air and thought her stuff didn't stink, and and it I it was a very good learning experience for me because I learned very quickly this is not what I want to do. <laughs> you know I I don't I don't want to be you know having to work my way up through the ranks of this this kind of a you know this kind of a work atmosphere. Um, mm-hmm. But you know. 
a lot of people stick with it and a lot of people love it and they they can deal with that and they have to obviously deal with personalities like Miss Fox or or Mr. LaBeouf or whoever you know and uh, especially I guess when when these these kids are younger and they're in the spotlight they've got all this attention and money getting thrown at them that it's very easy for the for that to all kind of go to their head and for them to act like prima donnas or you know to have certain expectations when everybody else is out you know sweating in in the 16k lamps or whatever you know trying to get the set the shot right and then the actress walks on and you know is upset because her water's in the wrong place or because somebody's sat in her chair or something like that All right, let's talk about our West Screen film for this week, and that is the story of I Love You, Philip Morris. Um, so this is a film telling the story of, of, of true story of Stephen J. Russell, who is a very famous uh, individual, notorious for being a con man, who it was able to use his intelligence and his gift of gab uh, to swindle a lot of money, and in doing so, get sent to jail and uh, then figure out ways of escaping. And multiple times, in fact, uh, in the state of Texas, which has one of the uh, sort of toughest penitentiary systems around. So he became very notorious for this, and uh, there was a book written. And from that book, we now have this movie um, starring Jim Carrey as the title character, Stephen J. Russell, and Ewan McGregor as Philip Morris. And this is not the Philip Morris of, you know, smoking conglomerate fame. So for those of you who follow, you know, the, the, all the politics and stories with regards to smoking and nicotine and tobacco, you're probably familiar with the name of Philip Morris. Um, this is Philip with two L's in it. And it was a real person that Stephen J. Russell um, met in jail and fell in love with. And who claim who claims by the, the the author of the book and people who've interviewed him that basically everything he did he did because he was sort of a fool for love, <laughs> um, and so this is this is sort of the basis for this movie. It is about the life of Stephen J. Russell from his conversion from a married man to a gay man to a con man to an ex-con. Um, and it's a very interesting way, you know, it's, it, the, the, the character is very interesting, but the way they tell this story is also somewhat interesting too, because it's sort of done through flashback, um, for much of the film. And then it comes up to a certain point and the story continues on. So Kevin, what did you, what did you think? Uh, what, what were some of your thoughts with this film? I really liked the film in the first half, at least. Um, it's told very efficiently. You the, the story sounds extremely long. It sounds like it goes to a lot of places, but it does so really quickly. Um, Jim Carrey is obviously great. Um, he owns the film essentially as as a uh, Stephen Stephen J. Russell. Um, and and the actually the writer directors they wrote uh, Bad Santa, 
Uh, I don't mm. know if you recognize their trademarks in the film. Uh, it's it's not as crude, but it does go to certain places that 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 shows why it still hasn't gotten distributed in the U.S. Um, I thought the the again the first half is very outlandishly funny. It's kind of strange, especially knowing that's a true story. The way that they handled the film, it's kind of outlandish. Everything seems sort of surreal. Um, I remember one one uh, quote unquote romantic moment where um, a neighbor in the cell was playing a romantic song, and then you see the the Jim Carrey and uh, Ewan McGregor the characters dancing and having this romantic moment, and suddenly the guards come in and and beat the guy next door up for yeah. playing the. That, t- that, it, that was one of my yeah. favorite scenes. I mean, I'm watching yeah. it. I'm going. This is a, this is a, this is a truly great scene, and that was one of the scenes that really sort of stood out um, in my mind. Yeah, it, it kind of shows, I, I wrote my notes here, is that in the film it shows that truth is stranger than fiction, but then the creators then made it stranger than the truth, which kind of made made it even funnier, I think. Yeah. Um, but in the second half, Rose Alon, um, when the story kind of stalls and it kind of gets focused onto the love story, for me, it loses steam a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, still, it's still very outlandish in the, in the situation-wise, though, not in the comedy anymore. It kind of becomes a little more down-to-earth. It's too grounded in reality. And in a way, it kind of slows down the story because the first half have been so kind of throw, have been so throwing so much at you that when it kind of slows down, you feel like the movie has stalled. Mm. Um, and it became uh, less funny. And, and the focus really strictly on, 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 um, on Russo's um, whole, his whole con, I feel McGregor, even McGregor was a little wasted. Um, he was great in the film. He played the more effeminate side of the relationship, and, and he, he really pulled off his role. And it was a really brave performance, uh, especially doing the... The, the 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 love scenes with with Jim Carrey, neither of which are homosexual, um, by the way. So I'm sure it might have been, uh, it, it potentially could be uncomfortable for for less experienced actors. But these two, I think, really pulled it off, and that's why it's a little frustrating that McGregor isn't so heavily featured in the film, especially if the film is named after his character. Yeah, he. It doesn't seem like he gets a lot of screen time, but. Um... I don't know. He he really he was a, a very significant sort of anchor in the film for me. I thought that right. um, in some of the in some of the more emotional scenes that he actually carried the film a little bit better than Car- Jim Carrey did for me. In, mm-hmm. in a few places, I got I got a sort of a, um, a an, an Ace Ventura pet detective vibe. <laughs> definitely, know, uh, yeah, definitely. Know, Jim Carrey is doing too much Jim Carrey and. And I think that was fine the first half of the film because it is a little more, it is supposed to be a little more outlandish. It is supposed to be a little more comedic. And it's almost like the director sort of let him, let him, uh, uh, let it out because you know yeah. he has it in him. Yeah. Um, and just sort of let it, let him let it out. And, um, I thought he was okay in the second half, but definitely, yeah, yeah I think, I think, uh, Ewan McGregor is much more fitting if it comes to the, the more serious, the more emotional scenes. He would have been a better fit for, I think, Carrie's character. Yeah. And, you know, just to make a, another Star Wars connection, I kind of went into this film with a little bit of trepidation, right? Because for me, you know, Ewan McGregor, Ewan McGregor is Obi-Wan Kenobi. So, <laughs> you know, I'm going into this film saying, okay, I know I know that there's a kiss scene coming. When's it coming? All right, where is it? Nope, not yet. Okay, oh, there it is, you know. <laughs> so once I sort of got past that, um, I, I sort of really got into the character that he was portraying, and it was very believable. Um, I, I found the the relationship of the, between these two men as 
something that was believable. And, mm. you know, I am not somebody who's a, a big fan of cinema that is very much in your face when it comes to telling gay, gay stories. And so I think that this really found a nice balance between telling the story of, of the con man and also telling the story of the relationship between these two people. Um, and so I was, I was, I was very pleased with it because I, I, I liked it a lot more than I was expecting to. Um, that being said, I'm, I, you know, it, it was, a, it was a little bit extreme in a few places. And, um, I'm, I'm wondering if this version was cut at all from the original. Mm. I know that, uh, from what I read about the film, now this originally, this is, this was a film from last year. Um, this got its first screening in Sundance, I think, back in 2009. And it's played all around the world. It's now got general release in Hong Kong, but it still hasn't gotten a general release in the U.S. because of, you know, the, the content here. Um, distributors have kept, you know, dumping it. Uh, a few times they'd pick it up and say, okay, we're going to release it, and then they've sort of backed off and said no. I think, uh, according to IMDb now, it's currently slated for um, July 30th. So it's still another two months away, and it's already a year and a half old. Um, and, and, you know, this is just speaking to some of the sensibility that's, you know, still existent in the U.S. film market with regard to gay and lesbian films, which is kind of sad. Um, also surprising is that this film doesn't have a Category 3 rating in, you know, Hong Kong. So compare that with some of the other gay or lesbian cinema uh, of renown that's played here that has had, uh, you know, those kinds of ratings. And, I, you know, I was surprised because, I don't know, do you, think that, do you think this was a Category 3 film at all in terms of, you know, some of the content or some of what was being discussed? Well, a lot of people were, I think, shying away from the from the graphic uh, sex scene, the gay sex scene, and there was one in the film. It wasn't cut; it was still in the film. Um, but apparently, I'm reading here. I'm looking up uh, reviews from England, um, and it says the film runs 102 minutes, but the Hong Kong cinemas have been saying that it runs 98 minutes. Yeah, I, so, I have a feeling some there was some there was some stuff that was cut. Well, if it was, it wasn't really obvious because even then there was a pretty graphic scene in there. Yeah. You remember? Which was actually one of the funniest. I thought it was one of the yeah. funniest reviews of it's, the film. You know, and when we say graphic, it's uh, you know, there's there's really no nudity. There's no nudity in the film in terms of you know body parts or things being shown. It's simply implied situations and uh, a lot of use of language that's going on. Um, and so you know, it, for for me, that sort of made the film a little bit more balanced than other films that I've I've seen. Um, but I'm still, I'm just really surprised that, you know, distributors in the U.S. are still so hung up about this. Because um, when you look at the, re the, the release, the release places, um, the release dates that are listed on IMDb, it's played everywhere. You know, it's played in Taiwan. Um, it's played in, you know, all throughout Europe, Japan, Japan yeah. the Philippines. I mean, it's played in the Philippines. That's one of the most, <laughs> you know, Catholic places on the planet and it got distributed there so come on us get with the program um yeah okay. i think it's more of the whole idea of um jim carrey being this who used to be this this family friendly comedy star and then suddenly you know doing this kind of role 
Yeah. And I, good for him. Uh, I wrote in my review on another website that, you know, it's hard for me to imagine 10 years ago that a guy who played Ace Ventura Pet Detective would end up playing uh, a gay comic. Well, even that, I mean, I remember, um, I, I don't know if you ever got to see it when you were in the States, but he started out on TV with the Wayans Brothers on a show called In Living Color, which Living was kind of yeah. like, um, you know, Saturday Night Live or Mad TV, which was great. And he was great in it. Um, and you know, he's, I mean, the Wayans brothers are still around, but he's the one that's really sort of shot up above, above the crowd, um, since, since then, uh, you know, and the other thing that's really kind of ironic here is that this is a true story about a guy that really exists. You know, he's still really in prison. Uh, he's still very much in love with Philip Morris. And it's a piece of, you know, in a sense, a piece of U.S. history. And it's not, it doesn't have a platform. It doesn't have a place to be, you know, distributed or shown, which is, it's kind of sad. Mm -hmm. uh, good news, Paul. I just checked the, um, the Time Out London website and it lists that it runs 97 minutes. So it would look like that the Hong Kong version was not cut. Mm-hmm. So uh, from what I saw, it's it's very fabulous. It's fabulously gay, yeah. but it's not it's not flamboyantly gay, and it's not it's it's not in your face. It's not like it's not graphic. It is okay. It's it's graphic in in a sense for those people who have never seen a gay sex scene, but it's definitely has a restraint. It's definitely a few restrained. Yeah. Um. It's not it's not you know gay porn for the sake of gay porn or gay sex for the sake of gay sex. It's it had a it had a. a even though it is comedic, it had a it had a purpose. Yeah, in the film. and it's it's a really I mean, that aspect of you know the sex scenes and and the, you know the relationship is is a dominant part because it mm -hmm. serves as you know it, it's it's about love as sort of the motivator for the crimes. But most of the film is about you know him pulling off cons or him trying to sneak out of prison, and and how he goes about it, and 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 that's a really a really fun part. It's um, what was the what was the Leonardo DiCaprio film? Um, Catch me if you can, right? Mm -hmm. in, in a way, it's it's kind of like that. If if you liked that kind of story about seeing somebody who kind of goes in and takes on different roles and is very clever in ways that he sort of gets away with things, um, I think you'll really like a lot of the the elements that are being you know put in here. And you you know you, there's not a lot that you have to look past if you're somebody who's like you know, afraid of approaching a film with this kind of sexual content or sexual emphasis. Actually, one thing that happened in my screening was that the the first half of the relationship is is kind of it's very funny. The the prison scenes, like the scene that we're just mentioning about the the tape dancing, it's very funny, so it attracts laughs in the Hong Kong audience. But later on when it takes it when when the story is taking it seriously, when they're having a real, you know, uh emotional scene as a couple, people are still laughing. Hmm. Like like it's supposed to be played for laughs, which is which I didn't get. I was it really? I'm not. I wonder if it's if it's the failure of the director to to not carry or to not be able to shift it so that people could take it seriously, or is it the audience? What do what do you that happened at your it, screening? It didn't happen at my screening. Um, there was one one person who walked out at one point, but it wasn't in any significant moment. So I I don't know that uh, you know maybe they just got bored or or something. But no the um, the, there wasn't any significant laughter at, at the points outside of where it seemed like the director was going for laughs. So, um, but yeah, it's a it's a it's a good film. I I found it very enjoyable. I think that if you get a chance to see it, um, it's it's worth it's definitely worth seeing.
We should be proud, Paul. This is the this is the first time we got a West Green film before the U.S. could review it. So, yeah, yeah, that's quite some, a moment. That's an achievement. You're listening to the East Green West Green podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. All right. Well, let's uh, move on to talk about. Um, some special discussion with our guest this week, uh, Mr. Tim Youngs. Um, so recently we, we got a chance to speak with Ross Chen on his experience at Udine. And so we thought we'd pick your brain a little bit this time, Tim. Um, now you are uh, considerably active in the uh, film festival there. And you, you are, um, if, I'm, if, I'm, uh, if I have this correct, you are one of the members of the selection board right you actually um recommend some of the films that get screened there is that correct yeah exactly i'm i they, they basically have consultants in territories right across asia uh i'm their hong kong consultant so mm-hmm. essentially with a festival like Fari's film it means that you spend the year watching films and <clears throat> you report back to you know, the people who run the festival and you give your recommendations and uh together people consider the films and out comes a program and on top of that, there's, you know, uh, putting together retrospectives, there's writing. The uh, film festival comes with, up with a lot of supporting text every year in, in the main catalog. Uh, it, it's quite a bit of hard work, but once you're actually there and taking in the films, it's quite a lot of fun. Well, I mean, the, the Hong Kong selection this year was quite hard, hard to make right decision because there are a lot of solid films, especially coming out in the spring, really close to the festival, right? Yeah, and of course you're also tied up because you can't necessarily get every film that you want to. Uh, some people are angling to get into other festivals. Some some films just simply aren't available to you. Uh, it, it's a bit difficult. Sometimes you can be spoiled for choice. I, I think we had a pretty strong Hong Kong program. We actually started off uh, with a Hong Kong film on opening night, and we did this. And on closing night, we also had a Hong Kong film. Uh, we had a Lung Kong retrospective, which was a pretty big deal. Um, that, that was uh, one of the first opportunities, really, for people outside Hong Kong to, to see his films, at least in recent years. Um, the festival has a lot of support for Hong Kong film. Uh, in fact, if you look back at the history of the festival, it actually came about because uh, uh, Udine actually ran a showcase of Hong Kong films, and um, that led to the film festival as we know it today, where there's a broader focus on Asian films, but Hong Kong film is still, you know, a large part of the program. Mm. So, so, what are the? Oh, sorry, go ahead, Paul. Uh, so, how would you? How would, um, you know, how would? How did you come about to uh, working yourself into this position? Because this is this is not this is not your regular job. Um, this is something you sort of kind of do, um, you know, in, in a consultancy position. And the festival only comes around, you know, one one time of a year. And you used to run a website, and so I'm assuming did did people, you know, come come and find you through your website and your the fact that you were simply in Hong Kong and you were engaged with films, or was this something that you sort of took a more proactive stance and you you know approached some people um, and showed that you were knowledgeable and interested in in doing this kind of work. Well, basically, I, I had the website, uh, my own website, where I was writing about Hong Kong film. I was moderating a discussion forum, and 
at the time, uh, the festival had already been going for uh, three years. And I was aware of it. I'd seen flyers in the POV bookshop in Hong Kong. I'd seen things online about things like their, their North Korean focus one year. Um, and they, they actually came to me. They um, invited me to, to help out. And so I actually went into the festival on a fantastic year for Hong Kong film. Um, it was the 2002 festival, and, and it, it was a really good year when I, when I started up. Uh, they had films like Horror Hotline, Big Head Monster, Diamond Hill, um, Funeral March, Merry-Go-Round, uh, Love Undercover won the Audience Award. We also showed, um, gosh, Dummy Mummy Without a Baby. It was a fantastic year. And, and, and that really, uh, what, what really excited me about the festival was that it focuses on commercial cinema. And that, that's what really excites me, just going to the cinema each week and seeing what, what there is on offer. And the audience is really responsive to that. And each year you could go back with a new program. Uh, and people are really interested in, in what's going on in just mainstream Hong Kong film. That seems interesting because I mean, you would when you typically you think of European or international festivals, the the notion of commercial cinema, it, it seems kind of you know antithetical or, um, you know, nor, normally you would think that it, at an international festival that it would be the, the Wong Kar Wai's and the Fruit Chans, um, that that get the focus. Um, what what makes this so different? Do you think? Well. There are also a lot of people that, you know, do respect the work of Wong Kar Wai and Fruit Chan and the like, but they also want to see what the masses are going for in, you know, East Asia. Um, there are people that really like the genres. They like comedies. They like um, horror films. They like, you know, just family dramas. Uh, Faris Film offers that. Uh, when it started out, uh, it was showing this kind of film, and it was pretty much on its own. Uh, a lot of the films were playing as premieres. Other festivals weren't quite interested. That has really changed. In recent years, there's a lot more competition for the films. Um, and you'll find other festivals are jockeying for the same, same things. And that's also part of, you know, catering to an audience that really does want to see these things. I think a lot of festivals don't quite, you know, want to try things like showing, say, Hong Kong comedies, but actually, they can really work with local audiences. You know, in, in Udine's case, it works with northern Italians. They can watch a film like Fat Choi Spirit and really pick up on, you know, Mahjong games on screen. You'd, you'd be surprised how well these things can travel. So, um, you know, this, this festival is taking place in Italy. Uh, is there a requirement that the films are all subtitled in Italian? Um, uh, actually, how does that work? Yeah. Well, no, in the main theater, uh, there are two venues, uh, like Ross said last week, there are two venues. The main one is an opera house that has simultaneous translation. So people can watch them either with English subtitles or they can watch them dubbed. That's mm. live dubbing. In the smaller theater where all the retrospectives happen, uh, all the films are actually subtitled in Italian and English. So wait, wait a minute, you said live dubbing? Yeah. So they Like United Nations? Yeah. Uh -huh. They have like actors in a room somewhere who are like just verbally acting out the scenes for people to listen to? Okay, I confess, I've, I've not actually used the service. But <laughs> uh, it, it, I think there's a lady up the back who is doing simultaneous translation, just like Legco. Oh, dude, that's awesome. That's like Rocky <laughs> Horror Picture Show or something. The only downside is this. 
when a film gets, you know, kind of slow, some people fall asleep and they drop their headsets. Mm. And so you hear this clatter. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so is that the only thing that's, that's changed over the years, that, you, that a lot of the commercial films, the world premiere has gotten hard to get? Uh, is there any other other things that have changed over the years uh, when it comes to films that you guys pick or when it comes to finding films or things like that? Occasionally, we've shown things that are a little bit more arty than you'd expect from a festival like that. So, uh, for example, we showed Peacock, the mainland film by Gu Changwei. That actually won Audience Award, which was a bit of a surprise because we had previously had wins for films, you know, like A Hero Never Dies. So, um, occasionally, you know, there's something a bit out of the ordinary that goes in there. After this, our exile is another example. We ran that one. And on top of it, we also did a retrospective of Patrick Tam's work. So we showed everything we could possibly show from his TV days and also his film days. Um, that isn't necessarily, you know, mass, mass viewing, especially, I mean, in Hong Kong, his work isn't, you know, you know all that popular. But right. we found that, you know, by showing these short films in his case and earlier works, you could you know, get a picture of, you know, what makes, you know, someone skirting the mainstream so interesting. Hmm. So do you, do you, I mean, do you still get to enjoy the, the festival since, you know, it's, you, you, you have to work it in a sense? I mean, do you, is it? Is it a case that it's just, you know, you're so busy that you don't actually have a chance to engage in the atmosphere? Or do you still find it an enjoyable experience, even though you're, you're sort of um, having to do so much work? It's totally enjoyable. Um, it's tiring, obviously. There, there are seminars uh, that you have to you know, help moderate. Uh, you try to see as many films as you possibly can. And uh, that, you know... You, end up quite exhausted at the end of the festival. Uh, but no, no, it, it's fun. And of course, it's also really good to hear people talk about things like Hong Kong films. Mm. People will come up to you and, and chat and, you know, talk about what they've seen and, and what they liked and, you know, what they like in Hong Kong film. And that's really interesting as well. So now how do you, how do you go about with regard to your sort of um, selection process? Or is it something that you simply do and you know kind of come up with a list yourself or do you have local talent local directors approaching you and saying hey would you you know consider taking my film to Udine um, or do you yourself sort of have to track people down and, and you know sort of the verse and say hey I'd like to take your film to Udine um, how, how does that sort of the logistical process of getting a film over there work well, it works several ways. Uh, we're watching films throughout the year, so if something, you know, is maybe representative of a trend, uh, if something has been a hit in Hong Kong, we'll, there's a good chance that we'll put it into the program. Uh, on top of that, people do send us uh, screeners. Uh, so, for example, Gallants, which we showed this year, uh, was picked because we received a DVD from the production company. And uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, people in the selection committee in Italy also really enjoyed it. Uh, Stephen Kremen uh, is also involved in this process. He's the lead consultant uh, in terms of helping manage the program as a whole. He also looks over films. Um, it, the final choice tends to be you know, distributed among, among several people. 
did, did, did you get a break after the festival or when to come back? Do you, have you already started picking films for next year? Uh, no, no. Uh, that, 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 there's a small gap. Uh, essentially, uh, we can think about future retrospectives, for example, but you can't really suggest films for the next year this early. Um, mm. it, it, it's, well, you just don't know what, how they're going to be received, uh, say, a year from now as well. And you also don't know what it would be. Maybe be something more representative to show later. So I think that's going to about do it for our show this week. Uh, I'd like to say a big thanks to Tim for stopping by and sharing his thoughts on the news and Once a Gangster with us, as well as his, uh, his thoughts and experiences from Udine. Um, so Tim, is there, are, are you still doing writing on your website? or No, it's pre pretty much dormant, unfortunately. Much dormant. I, I, I really need to, to yeah, get things back up and going. Yeah, but your your some form. your site is still up, right? I mean, it's still accessible. It's still up. Uh, it, it it's still there. Yeah. What what's the URL? Uh, it, it's kalunside.com. Kalunside.com. So if you visit there, you can see some of the work that uh, Tim was doing prior to being uh, swept up into the Udine scene. But you um, can also, of course, go onto the the fireistfilm.com website and see more writing there, not just from me, but from also the other consultants. Uh, mm -hmm. There's quite a lot there to read about about Asian film. All right. And of course, if you want to keep up with the show here, you can always stop by our website at www.concast.com. Uh, you can leave comments on the site and check updates, um, see what we're going to be doing in terms of. Uh, local movie nights, what we'll be watching and what we'll be talking about on upcoming shows. If you would like to um, send us some comments via audio to be played on the show, you can send uh, MP3 files to us via the show website or at concast uh, at hotmail.com. And we'd be happy to play any questions or comments that you might have. And if you'd like to keep in touch with uh, Mr. Ma, that is, uh, who sometimes goes by the name of Mr. Twister. Um, how can they follow <laughs> along with you, sir? You can follow me on... Okay. You can follow me on uh, Twitter. Uh, www.twitter.com slash Rock. That's in one word. You can also follow me uh, or my work, uh, what I do on my day job at yesasia.com in the Yumcha section. I am under the name Rockman and also, of course, the other great editors that work there as well. And uh, occasionally, apparently, I still keep up with a blog. I haven't done it recently, but uh, I'm trying to get an entry done over there. As, or Koza would kill me because I see him every day, so it's hard to avoid him. So, uh, so I'll try to update the blog a little more often. You can see that at www.lovehkfilm.com, uh, and you'll see the Golden Rock, the blog. So we will be back uh, to talk about something, at the very least, next week. Um, so until next time, we will wish you good viewing, and we will see you then. Thank you, Tim, and see you guys next time. Yeah, and I'm sorry. I mean, who's going to want to use the IMAX 3D glasses at any film that's screening immediately after Sex and Zen 3D. 
Nobody. <laughs> I want to say a big thanks to Tim for joining us, and um, and then he dropped. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, welcome back. Uh, hi. Okay. I wonder if someone's downloading movies on my network or something. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be ironic, right? <laughs> <laughs> We're sorry, your Skype is currently unavailable because someone is downloading Gallants as we speak. That would be bad. Would be or Ip Man 2. Donnie takes up all your bandwidth, right? <laughs> <laughs> or oh, Mr. Twister. Yeah. I take your bandwidth. 